But if you've got your Bibles, turn to Revelation. And we're going to get started last service. We, I'm supposed to get through all of chapter 1. I got to chapter, uh, verse 6. So I got to move faster. Uh, so let's pray and we'll get right into it. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is life to us. You sustain us in Christ through your word, your gospel truth. We can't know it unless you tell it to us. So give us the ears to hear what your spirit says to your church. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Chapter 1, Revelation, verse 1. The revelation, that's far enough. What are we reading? We are reading a revelation. And by the way, if you didn't get your study guides, please grab one of these. They are free to serve you uh, as you study revelation with us. The word in Greek here is apocalypsis. It's where we get the word apocalyptic or apocalypse. And this tells us something about the book in which we are going to labor together in over the next several weeks throughout the end of this year. There are many different literary genres in which books of the Bible are written. We have wisdom literature like Proverbs and like James in the New Testament that uh, give very quick, detailed um, uh, pro- proverbs, say, wise sayings on how we should live our lives. We read wisdom literature very differently than we read poetry. Poetry, uh, more akin to the book of Revelation, uses a lot of imagery and hyperbole, a lot of word pictures and metaphors to help us understand 30,000, uh, to help us see from a 30,000 foot view uh, complicated realities that exist when the Bible says the Lord is a strong tower. The Bible is not saying he's a building, but poetically he's saying he's, God is who we can run to to be safe in the times of trouble and tribulation. We have narratives, historical narratives. The four Gospels of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are historic eyewitness accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from people who were there. And when we read in historical narratives that Matthew was a tax collector and that's where Jesus saved him, Here's a bad interpretation of that. We all have to go work for the IRS or we can't be saved. We don't read narrative the way that we read poetry or the letters of Paul, the epistles in the New Testament. Now, Revelation is a letter. We'll talk about that in a second, perhaps. But it's not a letter written like Paul's letters, at least not all the way through. Now, these seven churches we're going to be talking about are written more imperatively and didactively. Do this, don't do this. I like what you're doing here. I don't like what you're doing here. These are simple imperative statements we can understand and obey immediately. Which is how we read Philippians and Galatians and Colossians. But this is an apocalyptic letter. It is a supernatural revelation. Why is there a book like this? And by the way, apocalyptic literature started way back 400 years before Christ in the Old Testament. 
But it's still used in the New Testament. Why? There's a purpose for a book like this. A book. How many of you grew up dispensational? Notice we don't have a dragon chart back here. There's a reason for a book that contains dragons and beasts and horns uh, and harlots and Babylon that was destroyed hundreds of years before, reborn and destroyed again. There's a reason for the imagery that we find because apocalyptic literature is meant to help us to see what we cannot see. There is, and every Christian who is saved by God's grace and loves their Bible knows there is a reality that is unseen to our physical eyes. There is another realm, another world. And by the way, if you guys missed the men's conference on Friday night, we sang this old sea shanty about sharpening our axes and taking to old donor's tree. I mean, it was awesome. I felt like I was in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> For Christians, we know there's an uns- there is heaven and hell and angels and demons. There are supernatural realities. We can't see with the human eye. So apocalyptic literature is meant to make clear what we cannot see. It's to, it's to bring what is hidden to light. And this is the way in which we should read Revelation. Also with Revelation. How many of you, you like Quentin Tarantino movies? Too soon, man. Too soon. Right? M. Night Shyamalan fans. Right? When we're reading Revelation, we need to understand that Revelation is one meta narrative. It's a huge story from beginning to end about the power of God and the power of good who, that conquers all evil and saves through his son, Jesus Christ. Big, large narrative of good overcoming evil. But within this large narrative, there are micro-narratives. There are many stories. The seven churches of Revelation is one of those narratives with a beginning and an end that fits into the larger narrative. But it is the book of Revelation is written in a recursive style, just like some of our favorite movie producers. Sometimes they start at the end. And then they do a a little segment uh, uh, of the middle, and then they go back to the beginning, and then they're back to the, right? The revelation is written in this way. What always bothered me uh, in my early years and in my uh, Christian immature, my biblical uh, uh, illiteracy, I begin to read Revelation. We got Jesus right here in chapter one. Big Jesus, and then his churches, and then we're back. Jesus is, is doing his thing, and there's bulls, and there's wrath. Uh, and show that, show that uh, recursive stories of Revelation real quick. And then you get about halfway through, and all of a sudden, you got a woman who's given birth. And, he, and you're, as you're reading the story, you're like, this has to be Jesus and his incarnation. But what is it doing here that's already happened? And you would, I have driven myself mad trying to understand this book. But when you understand the recursive nature, stories, lots of beginnings and ends, lots of, of tie-ins, 
We start a story here and then we get back to it at the, at the very end. We start in the prologue. It's going to come back in chapters 21 and 22. This is how we read Revelation. So if you ever find yourself reading and you understand, you're in, you've read like two chapters of Revelation, you're like, I get it, I get it, I get it. And then you get to another chapter and you're like, oh, it all fell apart. Chances are you've started another micro-narrative within the mega-narrative, and it'll make sense later if you just keep going. This is how we approach, and this is how we read the book of Revelation. Uh, and it's so helpful when the light bulb goes on and you see the recursive nature of this book and the apocalyptic nature of this book, all of a sudden the mysteries, the clouds begin to part and, and you can see with clarity the sovereign majesty and power of God at work in destroying evil in our world through his son Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. We'll get to the Trinitarian nature of Revelation. Maybe I'm already taking too long in the introduction. But one quick thing let me say to you. Now there are some images in Revelation that we don't see anywhere else in the Bible. And there is some new information that we receive uh, in Revelation. Particularly in places like chapter 20 when we hear about a thousand year reign of Christ. We would never heard about that anywhere else. Right? So there is new information in Revelation. But the themes of Revelation are not new at all. Every big narrative, every major theme in the book of Revelation is something we've already learned from Genesis throughout the rest of the New Testament. The sovereignty of God. Oh, that's just new here in the last book. Right? The realities of, of us being eternal beings. Heaven and hell. These are not new concepts. We, we already know these things from the rest of the Bible. Good versus evil. Angels and demons. Right? The, the salvation of God's people through the Son, right? These are things we already fully know from very clear, didactic and imperative sections of Scripture that teach these major themes and major doctrines. So as you're reading Revelation, if you get clouded up in mystery and you're not seeing things straight, don't create new doctrines. Because that's not what Revelation does. Revelation reinforces all the other doctrines we already know about from the rest of Scripture. Now, real quickly, put up the four classic views of how people have approached the book of Revelation because of its recursive style and its apocalyptic nature. From the, from the history of the Christian church, we've got kind of four different ways that people have, have seen and tried to interpret the book of Revelation. And I have them in their historical order, and I have what they just briefly believe. Now notice all four of these teams have the word millennialism in the end. We have start with historic premillennialism. Here's what historic premillennials believe. As they read through the Revelation... They labor to take every one of these detailed apocalyptic allusions and numbers and they try to bring literal sense to the allusions and to the, to the symbols. Because of that hermeneutical approach, 
they see as they move through Revelation a very clear, literal antichrist, a, a last person who sets themselves up against God, who is possessed by the devil himself towards the end of his reign, leading into a literal tribulation period of which the church will not be saved from. And then at the end of that tribulation, the literal second coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead, which leads us into a literal thousand-year reign on planet Earth. Now, here is the strength of this position. The strength of the position is this is the first eschatological, the study of the end times position on the second coming of Christ through the book of Revelation. The first 400 years of Christian history, all of the church fathers, their writings reflect this literal understanding. Now, again, part of the strength is this. The guys, these early church fathers writing about these literal things, their names are Irenaeus, Polycarp, Pious, among others. These men can be directly linked to John. They were either discipled by John or discipled by someone whom John, who received the revelation and wrote it down, they were discipled in, by the person who wrote the book. So when they say these things are literal, there's a lot of, that's the strength of historic premillennialism. Literal things occurring uh, by the people who learned from John. Here's the weakness of historical premillennialism, why it kind of fell out of fashion early on in church history. It is an insanely rigid and complex way to study apocalyptic literature. Historic pre-mill guys really center themselves in. They, they will dig down and they will write a 400-page book on one word, forehead, in chapter 17, verse 5. Here's the only thing it can be. I mean, they will dig down into the nitty-gritty details. And, and so the theology and the hermeneutic becomes very, very complicated when we're talking about first resurrections and second deaths and, and harlots in the fall of Babylon. I'm convinced most people move away from historic premillennialism because of the angst it takes uh, and the literal approach to symbolic, where it's just a lot of work to make sense of all the moving pieces. But if you want more information on this one, John Piper is where you go. George Ladd is where you go. Uh, David um, Dockery is where you go. Next, we got amillennialism. Now, after a couple hundred years of Christianity, something occurred that caused people to rethink the way they were reading the book of Revelation. What occurred? The fall of Rome. If you've ever read Augustine and all mills, they go back to Augustine. They love Augustine. Post mills go back to him too, but they don't do it as rightly as the all mills do. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. Why did he write The City of God? Because Rome fell. Rome 
that had nurtured Christianity and Constantine got saved and gave, and gave way to all religions, but Christianity was able to flourish and gain influence and, and infiltrated all parts of this great world empire. I mean, it was the Roman road structures of that, that caused Christianity to be able to spread like it did in the ancient world. Jesus came at the right time in history, amen, by God's sovereign decree. Yeah. But then something happened. Barbarians from the north came, Goths and Visigoths, and they began to sack the empire and they began to defeat the Roman legions and even Rome itself was sacked and Augusta was in North Africa at the time serving as bishop and when the word comes that Rome the center of power of the entire empire had been sacked. The church is going, what is going on? I thought these things were happening soon and near. And where's the return of Christ? And, and all of civilized society is, is going under. How could God allow this to happen? So amillennialism comes to power, a new way to read the book of Revelation where, where uh, that, that ties into the apocalyptic nature of it and sees things as symbols. Uh, the word for amillennialism, that A in the middle of millennial, or at the beginning of millennial, means no. So the word itself, which amillennials hate this definition, and we'll talk about idealism in a, in a second, but... See, I'm already going too long. I got 28 minutes left. I hadn't even got to the text. This is what happens. Welcome to my life. You can't take things literally. Amils believe this is just, Revelation is just showing this cycle between good and evil that's going to happen over every generation, over every generation, over all of time until the Lord decides to come back. So this is a recurring cycle. The strength of Amil is... It's just, it is a simple and uncomplicated way to read the book of Revelation. It, it is very clear in its understandings. Uh, and if you want to read more about Amil, Sam Storms uh, is your guy. J.I. Packer uh, is your guy. But the weakness of Amil is they get to something they don't understand and they just sweep it under the rug. Oh, it's spiritual. You don't have to worry about it. Next, we get to post when did post when did Amil began to come out of and of course there's still a lot of most reformed people are Amil. Uh, but uh, when did that begin to slide? When did a new way to read Revelation begin to come? Civil war leading into the great wars. Right? Because Oh, oh, and the Enlightenment period and the Reformation period is when post mill really began to get started, leading to the Civil War and the Great Wars. Post-mill, now remember the Enlightenment period. When God's people began to realize that God created everything and he created us with minds and we can go out there and we can study his creation and we can know things and we can build things and we can do things. The Enlightenment period was this time in history where music explodes, art explodes, uh, sculpting explodes, architecture explodes, society itself explodes, and the sciences explode, all led by men, Christian people wanting to honor God and live for the glory of God. And stuff started growing and exploding and more influence, and God was being glorified. So as people began to go to Revelation in this time period, they could see 
man, this, this whole millennial thing, we're in it now. Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven through his church on earth. And he's going to continue to empower us by his spirit. We're just going to grow, 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 grow until there's no more bad. And that's how, that's when the Lord is going to come back in his second coming. And that is the strength and the beauty of this position. Yes, we can. Let's go. Let's do it. And here's the reality. We just read Exodus, and I believe as we move into 1 Corinthians, I want everyone to live like a post-millennial. Amen? Its strength is the beautiful picture of the gospel at work in the people that is changing the world for the better. So what is the weakness then? Of the post And by the way, your guys for, for this are Doug Wilson, R.C. Sproul, your modern guys. The weakness is, as we move into the Civil War period from the Enlightenment and the Great Wars, the world's not getting better. The world's, in fact, getting worse. And if you read Revelation more literally, you see this thing ends in terrible tribulation before the return of Christ. And that's when we got this Next theological understanding and way to read the book of Revelation. We read the book of Revelation through our own modern newspapers in the 1850s. Think about that. Now they returned to a premillennialist position. They returned to the original roots of the Christian church. Literal antichrist, literal tribulation, literal thousand year reign of Christ. But they add something. And what they add comes from this understanding of, well, God just wants us all to be happy and we would never have to suffer. He'd never do anything to hurt us or that we'd have to persevere through. What does that sound like? Sounds like the beginnings of the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? And in the 1850s, a guy named John Darby, who was part of a group of people called the Plymouth Brethren, goes into his barn, and if you've ever seen A Beautiful Mind... Anybody? Russell Crowe, the, the schizophrenic crazy guy in the movie with his chalkboards, with all these different things connecting to one another that shouldn't connect with one another? Well, welcome to John Darby. John Darby comes up with this crazy system, and this verse talks about fire, so that's got to be the Holocaust. He starts pointing all the... John Darby is the reason when I got saved at the age of 21... The first book I picked up in a Christian bookstore is Why Mikhail Gorbachev is the Antichrist. Right? The, the bear from the north, and he's got the sign on his forehead right there. One of the second books I got, which scared me to death, was ATM machines, credit cards, and the day they take your money away. <laughs> and it was all dispensational. These verses mean this, and... And so any new change, and come on, we've been through Y2K, we've been through all the stuff. We've been through the demon pictures in 9-11, all the stuff. This is what dispensationals do. They take modern realities and they try to tie a Bible verse to it and say, it's, it's the fulfillment, this is the end. But don't worry, we're not going to have to suffer. It was the Dispies that came up with this idea of rapture. How many of you grew up in a rapture-ready home? 
How many of you grew up when you got off the school bus and if mom wasn't in the kitchen cooking when you got there and you yelled for her and she didn't answer, you hit your knees fast because you thought you'd miss the rapture. I feel like you're with me on that one. Thanks. It's been a little quiet in here. Rapture is a John Darby thing from 1850, and uh, it is new theology. Right now, so what's the strength of dispensational? They do try to take a literal approach and a literal hermeneutic to this apocalyptic. But what would be the weakness? This is new understanding. And if you know anything about the last couple hundred years of, of theological hermeneutics, new is not good. New leads to error. And new has led to what ha- has begun the prosperity. We're not going to have to suffer anything. God's going God's to, he's going to have a second coming, but he's going to have a cameo. Second coming first to take us out. And we're not going to have to suffer through anything. And then the second coming is going to happen. And we miss all the pain and hardship, which all the rest of the New Testament speaks to. So strength and weakness is there. But if you do want a good dispute, let's do John MacArthur is your guy. Skip that next one. Let's just start going. Actually, show it real quick. We don't have time. People of the last couple decades have said it's not fair that all our views have to deal with millennialism, which is just in one chapter of the book of Revelation. It's found six times in that chapter, but it is only in chapter 20. So we needed broader brush scopes. Which is when, why we came up with it. And in modern books that you read, they don't do the, the, the amillil and post-mill anymore. It's the historicist, idealist, uh, preterist, and futurist. But broad brush scopes, you still got historic pre-mill, you still got amill, you still got post-mill, and you still got dispensational. Chapter 1, verse 1, ready? The revelation. The revelation of what? The revelation of, of who is a better question. The revelation of living your best life now, the revelation of being a good person and earning salvation, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're ever so fixated on a dragon and his horns and you miss the person of Jesus Christ, you're reading Revelation the wrong way. Everything. Every enemy, every demon, every angel, every event, every micro-narrative, all of the macro-narrative is all focused. This is a revelation of the person and work and salvation power of Jesus Christ. Everything in this last book of the New Testament canon fixates us and points us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Must soon take place. Now skip down real quick to the end of verse 3. Because we get one more time. The time is near. Let's talk about this. So, this revelation is being given to John about Jesus Christ... Because there are some things that are soon to take place and the time is near. Well, it's been 2,000 years. So what are we, how are we supposed to read this? There's two, 
There's actually several different ways people have come up with to understand this, but there's only two that make any sense. The first is this. Time stamps like this in the book of Revelation have more to do with perspective to us, human beings who live 70 years, 100 years, if we're really lucky, if God's gracious and good to us. So 2,000 years is a long time to somebody who lives 70 to 100. But to God, Scripture teaches that a day with the Lord is as a 1,000 years. So to God, it's only been two days since the ascension of Christ. So it is still soon from his eternal perspective. He who was, is, and will always be, as we'll read twice in chapter 1. So you can see it from a a perspective issue, the perspective of God. This is soon, even though it's been 2,000 years for us. But I think the better way to approach this is the historicist view. We are going to see God writing to and revealing to John this vision to be written to seven real churches in a real... Just like Paul wrote to the Philippians in the church in Philippi, specifically in context to them. Is it for us? Of course it's for us, because God's word is true for all people at all times, in all places. Is what God's writing to these churches real and true for us today? Yes, 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 yes. But at the same time, they are actually living in the beginning of this process. This is really soon for them. And what I love about the video is all the little longitude and latitude points as, as we go through Asia to show where these trade. You can still visit the remnants of these churches today. And many Christians take pilgrimages to these places. So, so what is beginning in this vision was soon occurring in the lives of these churches leading to the second coming of Christ, which still relates to us today. All right, so back up, verse 1. Things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So this is supernatural revelation that God is giving to John concerning Christ Jesus, verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Why is John receiving this revelation, this supernatural revelation? Remember John 1.14 that we hit a couple times at the end of Exodus. He says in John chapter 1, the gospel that God allowed him to write... The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. John was an eyewitness to these, uh, the events of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. So this is why the revelation is supernaturally being given to him to continue his testimony about Christ to the churches. Also, he was the only apostle still alive at the time. We go with the 90s date, sorry. All right, verse 2, who bore witness. Verse 3, blessed, underline it, is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear 
And blessed who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, most people don't realize this, but there are actually seven blessings to God's people as we walk through the entirety of the book of Revelation. This is only the first of those seven. But think about this. Because there's no other book in the New Testament that says just reading this book will bring blessing to you. Hearing this book, there's a blessing that is given. Doing what this book says, there is a blessing. So blessed are we this morning as we labor to work through the beginning of Revelation. Verse 4, John, to the seven, now underline the word seven, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now we're going to talk a lot about seven. We named the series seven. Seven is found 50 times throughout the book of Revelation. I'm talking seven angels, seven seals, seven lampstands, seven bowls of God's wrath, seven, 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 seven. Seven churches written to here in the first three chapters. What is the, what is the, the deal with seven? Seven takes us all the way back to the first book of the Bible to understand its origins. What happens in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible? God creates the world in seven days, creates it in six and rests from his work on the seventh day. So the number seven from the very first chapter, the very first book of God's holy word is infused with meaning and with purpose that is carried from Genesis throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament used 50 times in the last book of the Old Testament revelation. God's creative order in seven days gives the purpose to the number seven throughout the Bible of completion and perfection. So as we, as we work through Revelation and we see seven reoccur and reoccur and reoccur, you need to see whatever seven is being applied to. Seven, seven churches, they are literal historical churches, but seven gives us this complete perfect reality of God's word to his universal church in all times, in all play. His word to the, these churches are, is perfect and complete, not only for these churches, but for all churches moving forward. John, writing to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So we have the word seven again already in chapter one. Appropriated to, to spirits, seven spirits before the throne of God. These seven spirits called seven spirits before the throne and seven spirits of God appears four times as we move through the book of Revelation. Again, I'm going to give you, there's lots of guys with lots of ideas. I'm going to give you the best two options. If you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And they're going to put it on the board for you. Seven, God is triune. He is three yet one. Father, Son, and Spirit. What are, what are these seven spirits? What, what is this concerning? Many say these seven spirits are simply symbolic personifications of the work of the one Holy Spirit who empowers and appropriates the work of Christ to the will of the Father. 
And we find the, uh, those personifications in a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. The Spirit of the Lord. There's one Spirit of the Lord who begins this shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. These seven personifications fully wrap up the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives in bringing us to Christ. And to, right when we read John 14 or John 16, the work of the Spirit is to teach us and train us and lead us and guide us. All right, and you can see all these things wrapped up in these, pers- these personifications of the entirety of the work of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a pretty good way to understand the seven spirits here, personifying the work of the Holy Spirit. But also, we could just look at the number seven. The second way we could look at this. Because there's only one person who is the Spirit of God, not seven. So it's either seven personifications or it's seven being the complete and total perfect work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the churches through the work of Christ to the glory of God. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness... Jesus is the twice God spoke from heaven. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. God has a mind. He creates and through through the Trinity of God, he speaks the word and the spirit does the work and creation. But it's the father's mind moving forward, giving meaning and purpose to everything. And that will, his mind is appropriated through the work of his son. Jesus is the witness of the mind of God in the world. It's why he says, I only do what the father says do. I only go where the father says go. I only say what the father tells me to say. The miracles were a witness that that Jesus was the divine son, God in flesh, representing the father on planet earth, appropriating the will and mind of God through the power of the spirit. There's a lot of Trinitarian work within Revelation. Christ is, this revelation of Jesus, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And just write 1 Corinthians 15, we don't have time to go there. But Jesus Christ is the first person, first fleshly person. A lot of people have been resuscitated. But resuscitated people at some point, sometimes they get an extra month, an extra minute, an extra 10 years. But resuscitated people die again. But Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, rose bodily. He was not resuscitated. He was resurrected. On the third day, he conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. I say that all the time. Understand the importance. Jesus Christ was raised bodily and therefore called the firstborn among many brothers because he conquered once and for all to never die again, death and hell. So you and I in Christ shall also. And he'll always be the firstborn. We couldn't do it without him. Baptism, dead to sin, alive in Christ, new creations. We will rise bodily because he rose bodily first, paving the way for us to follow in his footsteps. Amen? And he is also the ruler of the kings of the earth. This revelation of Jesus Christ, we know from the very beginning, there is no other authority, no other power, no other kingdom, no other nation. 
that will usurp his glory or his authority. Jesus Christ is the ruler of all the earth, of all the kings of the earth, of all the nations of the earth. No one can go over his head, around his back. He is, he was, and he forever will be. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, God loves his people and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We're going to celebrate communion here in a few moments together as a church. Don't let anyone ever talk. There is no Christianity without a bloody cross. How does he, the wages of sin is death. We deserve death. Penal, there's a penalty for sin. Jesus worked as our substitute. He lived the perfect life we have not. He stepped into the place where, that we deserve, the penalty that we deserve. He moves us out of the way and he stands in our place. He substitutes himself for us to atone for our sins through his blood. We just went through Exodus. It's his blood sprinkled on the mercy seat that covers the broken law, the law that we have broken. Our sins are covered by the blood of Christ and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That word amen, so be it. But Exodus 19, we read. Right, what was the whole purpose of the priesthood? The foreshadowing. The priests got access into the holy place. The priests could go where the people could not. What does the blood of Christ do for us? It covers us. In 1 Peter 2.9, it makes us a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a people unto God who now have access to the Father through the work of Christ and his blood. This is who we are now in Christ. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Regardless where you place the writing of Revelation. Some place it, they try to get it before the fall of Jerusalem so the Antichrist can be Nero and write all the stuff. But everything historically points to a later date in the 90s. But either date you choose... This is all after the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So we're talking about the second coming. He came in the clouds once in his first coming. Well, he's coming in the clouds again. And all that coming in the clouds, you're not going to see Jesus riding a cloud like in Mario. Right? That means there's a cosmic shift coming. The, 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 the powers of physical reality are going to be supernaturally and cosmically shaken. This is what, through all prophetic apocalyptic literature, uh, the, these, these uh, signs of the skies and clouds and fire and, and lightning, cosmic disturbance is going to occur uh, as Jesus comes again. He came once. He's coming again. And all the realities that we think are so prevalent, they're going to be shaken in a moment at his coming. I am, he says, the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last. I am the first and the last. Jesus, 
was before. Jesus will always be. Jesus has always been. If you can just, if you can picture, we see, we see time linear, right? We see time, we, we, we were born and we've been moving on a linear line and we'll continue to move until our death. But, but God is the page, C.S. Lewis said, on which our linear timelines are written. He is right now before. He is right now after. He sees it all as one piece. And you and I get to experience that sovereignty, that, that, that holiness, that glory within the linear times he's placed us here within his creation. But he is the beginning and the end, who is and was and who always is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9. I got two minutes. Awesome. Come on, let's move. Stay with me. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. So I, John, now we know who John is. John's one of the 12, but he wasn't just one of the 12. He was one of the three. Peter, James, and John were part of the the inner circle. They were the best friends of Jesus. They got to go places nobody else went. They got to go deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. They got to go on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. John was the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one at the Last Supper that's leaning on the breast of Christ. He's called the Beloved. He's the last one alive. And he says, he doesn't doesn't lean on his apostolic authority that he could have. But he says, as your brother, right? He's in his his 90s. He was probably 16, 14 to 16 years old. Most scholars believe when Jesus called him to be a disciple. And remember how in his youth, when people rejected Jesus, he was like, let's call fire down from heaven on him. That sounds like a 14-year-old, right? He becomes known as the apostle of love as he serves as an elder in the church in Ephesus for many years. But here he says, there's a reason Jesus, I'm a witness of all of it. I've been around a long time. I'm the last one left. And now I have this revelation to pass on to you. And I'm just a brother. I hear the pastoral heart of John wanting the churches to, to see and hear the revelation of Christ. I'm just a brother who's a partner with you. That word koinonia is in that word. This is just a partner. We saw that in Philippians. You and I were partners together in the gospel right now in our generation. He's like, I'm just a partner with you both in tribulation and the kingdom. If you have somehow deceived, if the only books you're reading are by Joel Osteen, you have been deceived. Hardships occur. Tribulations occur. John is riding from an isle of Patmos where only criminals are sent. He's been exiled. Why? He lived through the persecutions of Nero. He got the word when Peter was crucified upside down, when when Nero took Paul's head, when, when James was murdered, martyred. He's lived through the hardships. Domitian, one of the the worst for Christians in the Roman Empire. It was Domitian that boiled John in oil, tradition tells us. And he didn't die. You know what I've always wondered? I don't have time for this, but I've always wondered, was John hideously disfigured? I mean, did he look like Freddy Krueger? He should look like Freddy Krueger. Or was it a miracle and he came out and he still had his hair and, and he wasn't unblemished at all? We don't, we don't know the answer to that, but, but history tells us Domitian hated him, boiled him oil, but he didn't die. 
And so he was exiled to Patmos. John knows the tribulations God's people are experiencing. But he also knows the kingdom and partners in the kingdom. God's word is growing. God's church is growing. The power of God is moving the will of God forward in the world. John says, I partner in both of these things with you. And the patient endurance that is in Jesus. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven, and he talked more about the kingdom of heaven than anything. It's like a little seed. It's planted in the ground, and it grows, and the growth is slow, but eventually over time it becomes a huge bush that the birds come and build their nests in. It is through, listen, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And it is through the patient endurance that comes in Jesus. You and I, we can partner together in the tribulations as well as the kingdom. This is, man, that's good stuff. Let me give you one more thing. Stay with me. You're kind of a captive audience. So So I'm on Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he is sensing the presence of God. It's, it's Sunday. And even though he's exiled on an island, he's going to, to sit and reflect on the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of God and, and worship him as he would in the church if he could, but he didn't have the opportunity. Everybody watching from home, if you have the opportunity, you should come. You're not on Patmos. And there's a loud voice like a trumpet. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking. I want you to see this. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, we, Jesus tells us what those lampstands represent at the end of this, so we don't have to worry about that right now. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, underline that. Jesus' favorite self-designation. Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man 78 times in the Gospels. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, if you want to write that down. And Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 are really important right here. I saw one. Right, so, so I hear this voice. It's like a trumpet. And then I see these seven lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man. One like the images that I've known all my life from Daniel, the first place we see the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. If you ever want to know why South Park, when, when God shows up, he's always got white hair. This is why, Daniel and this, this is why. The hairs of his head were white like white wool. It doesn't mean he's old and decrepit. It means he is full of wisdom and purity, which is what white symbolizes. Like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Bronze being dense and strong. It's like saying my feet are in concrete. There is strength in the footing of this son of man. None can move him. You're not going to push him over. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. We're going to learn what those are in a second too. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And when we go to Daniel chapter 7, before the Son of Man is introduced, we are introduced to the Ancient of Days. I need you to see, if you've ever talked to that Jehovah's Witness or that Mormon who doesn't believe Jesus is God, the Ancient of Days is revealed with white hair as this, this burnished bronzed feet, immovable, almighty God of all things who introduces the Son of Man to the world, riding on the clouds of glory and gives all power and authority to the Son of Man. We'll hear in Revelation after the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus moving towards his second coming. It is now Jesus who looks and has the features of the Ancient of Days himself. Because God is three in person, but one in essence. And when we look into the shining face like the Son of Jesus, we're looking into the face of the Father. Jesus is the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit, is the, they are three in person. Working in perfectly, perfect harmony amongst themselves as one, ihad, one community that is God. And Jesus now takes the reflection of the ancient of days in this revelation of who he is. And what is John who knew Jesus, had walked with Jesus, had seen Jesus? What is John's response? I fell at his feet as though dead. Throughout Scripture, when the glory of God is revealed to humanity, this is always the response, the proper response. Because we don't deserve to be in His presence. But He laid His right hand on me saying, Fear not. The number one most given command from God to his people through, from Genesis throughout Revelation is fear not. I don't know what you are in fear of today. Maybe you fear Tuesday in the mid-election. And if there's a red wave, guess what? The Republicans are still not in control. If the Democrats keep it, they're not in control. Fear not, I am the first and the last. It is Jesus Christ from beginning to end in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our careers, in our churches, in every situation, every extenuating circumstance we could possibly face. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God conquers all evil, always has, does now, and always will. Praise his name. Amen. Yeah, we're going to finish this. Ushers, go ahead and come. Begin to pass out the elements. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. 
and I have. Look, it, it may seem like Satan has some power and Satan's in charge, but he doesn't have the, you know, he doesn't have the keys. Not even to the place where he dwells. He doesn't have the keys. I hold the keys to all. There's none above me, none below me. None can stand beside me. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. And here's what you got to love. You got to love it when Jesus tells you exactly what things allude to. Because we know we're getting this right. Jesus says the seven golden lampstands uh, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So the seven stars are angels and the seven lampstands are the seven churches represented in chapters 2, verses 3. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, who are these angels, quickly? We only have two possibilities. The word angelos in the Greek can mean a human messenger. And some people say these have to be human messengers. They're probably the pastors of these churches because why would God have to write a letter to a supernatural being? Which is a pretty good argument. But at the same time, the word angelos in the, word, in the book of Revelation never refers to a human. It only refers in the book of Revelation to a supernatural being. So now God wouldn't need to write a letter to a supernatural being. But again, that's not the point of apocalyptic literature. The point is communication is being made to spiritual realities that God has set over the churches. And if you read Ephesians chapter 6, you know there are principalities. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against, against, against spiritual rulers. And God, I believe the, the better hermeneutic here is to understand that the church is represented by a lampstand, a light in the world. We're going to see a little later in Revelation, it's the Holy Spirit that is the oil in the lamp that causes it to burn and be the light in the world. And there are spiritual realities that God has put in place to protect and to provide and to call to repentance through the Spirit of God. What we're going to see over the next seven weeks, God's speaking to seven historical churches and his message to them is his message to us. There are things they're doing wrong and God says, stop. How many of you, how many of you want over the next seven weeks to find out what displeases God in his church so we can stop doing it, amen? How many of you want to, want to see what God rewards and what God's excited about that he sees in his churches? We're going to see that too. He starts off in most of the churches, this I don't like so much, stop doing this. Oh, but here's what I love. So what we see God hate, we're going to hate and we're going to repent of and we're going to shake off the weights that so easily entangle. And what God loves, oh, we're going to center ourselves in. We're going to say, God, may your spirit help us to be the church where it's a sweet aroma in your nostrils and you are rejoicing as we glorify you in the way you have called us to glorify you, which only occurs through your son who appropriates your mind through the power of your spirit, causing us to burn in this world and shine for you.